From Covenant Shreveport, this is Origins of the Faith. Chapter 15, Peter as Pontifex Maximus, Beginnings of the Papacy. Let's talk about the Pope. <laughs> this is one of the biggest questions people have, I think. Oh, by far. Where in the world does the Pope come from? And I'd be willing to bet that there's also some controversy even around the fact that Shelley has placed it in chapter 15 of his church history book. Yeah, yeah. I think it's rightly placed. I would agree. However, I would say that I found this chapter to be a bit of a letdown. I felt like it was... Um, Truncated. I mean, and maybe, yeah, and, and you know, it does say the subtitle is Beginnings of the Papacy. Sure. And it is very much the beginnings of the papacy. Um, and, 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 and hopefully we can get into more of this later on. Um, because I do, I, I mean, I do find the, the, the papacy to be really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and just how it kind of develops. And, and he does give us a little bit of a sense of this in this chapter. Um, but I do think one of the big things we should take away from this is that this is not a doctrine that pops up overnight. That's right. Right. It is something that develops slowly over time. Um, has the city of Rome always been significant? Yes. As a result, has the Bishop of Rome always been significant? Yes. But has that person been the quote unquote vicar of Christ forever? No. And um, that is something that I think what we see a little bit of here in this chapter is it is something that is as much a political thing Mm -hmm. as it is a religious thing. Yeah. Um, Go ahead. To frame some of this again, because we, we briefly touched on this in the last episode as well. The, the categories that Shelley's using as we move through these chapters, they're not linear. So we we ended one chapter in 451 at Chalcedon, right. and then we jumped backwards to discuss Augustine, who was, you know, anywhere from the 380s into the 430s. And then when we were talking about monks, that was way back in the 250s up to about 350. And when we talk about the beginnings of the papacy, Shelley touches on everything from Nicaea, which is 325, mm-hmm. all the way up to the Vandals in Rome up right. in 455. So this is, you're right, it's not, it's not an overnight thing. This is a, a subtle shift that happens in the doctrine largely taking place in Rome mm-hmm. that begins to spread throughout the rest of the church and the rest of the Roman Empire. But he, he does start out by, by saying exactly that. This is, this being the papacy is a highly controversial subject. And Shelley says, no other institution has been so loved and so hated. Going so far as to say some Christians revere the Pope as the vicar of Christ, while others denounce him as the Antichrist. (laughs) Yes. That that is controversy in a nutshell. It is. It is. I think there are two things that we need to maybe concentrate on in this chapter. Uh, One is the person of Peter. Mm -hmm. Um, And because... Peter's the the namesake in the title of this chapter, Peter as Pontifex Maximus. Um, but really the chapter's about this other person, Leo. Leo. Um, who Peter is often called the first pope, but it's really Leo 
who steps into this role that isn't simply that of spiritual leader, but is that of political leader. And we see that in that Leo basically is the face of Rome to these invading forces. Mm-hmm. Like he is the one who goes out and meets with Attila the Hun and his armies. He is the one who goes out and meets with the Vandals mm-hmm. and um, negotiates on behalf of Rome. And so he suddenly, and, 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 and as a result, the, the seat that he holds, the, the bishop uh, of Rome, suddenly in, in subsequent generations, that becomes a seat of great authority. Yeah. And not just, again, religious authority, but also political authority as well. Um, but, but let's start with Peter, because um, for most Roman Catholics today and throughout most of history, they go all the way back to the first century and they go back to Peter, who even though even though the New Testament does not tell us this, um, Peter is believed to have been martyred in Rome. Um, tradition holds, and it, I think most scholars think that the tradition here is valid, that Peter was crucified upside down in Rome because he didn't want to be crucified in the same way that Jesus was crucified. And that... Fairly early on in the history of the church, the church comes to view Peter as the first bishop of Rome, mm-hmm. even though he may have never held that title. Right. Um, and maybe during his lifetime, that was not really a thing. We know it becomes a, the bishop of Rome becomes a position and a title by the end of the first century. But it is possible that it happens in the 20 years or so of that century that happen after Peter's death. Mm-hmm. So um, there is a desire, I think, for the church to create this succession of bishops that we've talked about before, um, or what's known as an apostolic succession. And there is connection to this one verse where Jesus says, you are Peter, Peter, and on this rock I will build build my my church. church. Yeah. So so what are your thoughts on this, Taylor? Because even today, I hear Roman Catholics who appeal to that verse Mm -hmm. as validation that Peter was the first pope, even though that was not a word that Peter would have even been familiar with. Mm that this verse somehow is validation of that fact. Yeah, I've um, I was really troubled over this over this verse, especially in college. Okay, um, thinking that man, if your your entire your entire theology has to hinge on the way you interpret this verse, it was that that was how deeply I cared about it. Um, but this morning, when preparing for our episode today. I did look at a few commentaries I had on hand, mm. um, and a few things that they that they all had in common, and this was from a, a, a few different guys, um, a few things they had in common was that you cannot, let's say, you, you can't deny that the text speaks to Peter, 
Yeah. That, that when Jesus says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, you can't deny that the text is speaking directly to Peter. And so there is some, there is some preeminence in the immediate context. But all of these, um, all of these commentators said there is no eternal preeminence and no talk of succession. And so even though there is merit to, I think, multiple views, there is an obvious primacy of Peter in this text in Matthew, Luke, and John. Uh, And I have here, I believe this is R.T. France um, saying, it is only Protestant overreaction to the Roman Catholic claim that what is said here of Peter applies to the later bishops of Rome that has led some to claim that this rock is not Peter at all, but the faith which he has just confessed. Mm. So that's one commentator saying, in order to in order to make this claim that Jesus is saying, on your confession, I'll build my church, you have to deny some of what the text seems to be explicitly saying. Mm-hmm. So that, that, okay, so in a nutshell, Jesus is talking to Peter when he says, you are Peter, Petros, rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. I think what we miss here, and Shelley points this out, that, that our theory that Peter becomes this immediate bishop of Rome and the foundation of Jesus' church, some of the things that we miss here are the fact that Peter was a human who went on almost immediately to sin. Mm-hmm. He continued to sin and deny Christ in his own life. There was no talk of succession in what Jesus said, and there was, there was no talk of this office, that, that Peter's succession or the the apostolic succession that we see that we can track through history was somehow handed down via Jesus through Peter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I hope, hopefully that's coherent. I don't know if I took a direct yeah. stance there though. That maybe that's my problem. Well, I don't see Peter as Pope. How about that? <laughs> well, I don't think Peter saw himself as Pope there you go. either. Right. Like that certainly, that certainly wouldn't have been a part of his framework. I mean, I think there there are two ways that you can take that passage. One is that one is in more of a, um, a metaphorical sense, I guess, um, where you are Peter, and I mean, Peter is viewed. I, I would say that P, the New Testament holds up Peter as a leader among the other apostles, right? Um, certainly, as the most outspoken of the other apostles, and that the church at large is going to be built on the apostolic witness of which Peter is a lead representative. And um, and yet there is nothing about Rome in that statement, um, or to your point, there's nothing about this like position as bishop of Rome in that statement. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so... And it's one verse too, right? And it's it's one verse that you can take in a couple of different ways, and so it it does just seem a little bit tenuous that so much is built on this one idea. Yeah, and and one of Shelley's counterpoints here is, in fact, it's it's his first one. He says the Gospels make clear that preeminence among the followers of Christ was not to be according to the pattern of the princes of the world, yeah, who exercise yeah. lordship and authority. So. Yeah, this is this is a little confusing though because the papacy in today's world is a very different thing than what it would have even been for like Leo, 
um, who's profiled in this chapter, in that there are things today such as uh, the doctrine of papal supremacy, which is basically that the Pope is considered to be the authority of the worldwide church, that he is, in a sense... Um, he, in many ways, he sort of inhabits this role that the Roman emperor once inhabited, where the Roman emperor was viewed as the representative of the gods on earth. Mm-hmm. In, in, in a very similar way, the Pope by some is viewed as God's representative on earth now. Um, and so at, because his, the view is that his position has been instituted by God, he is the, the authority Rather than Christ being the authority, the the Pope is the authority. Yeah. So, he, or or at the at at best, he's this middleman. Um, the other is the doctrine of papal infallibility, right? That that is that is something that has come along the way over the last yeah. you know fifteen hundred. Surely Leo didn't hold to this, right? Um, and so when we think of the papacy in today's world, there, we are looking at um, a, you know, a model that has 1,500 years of additions and change and development behind it. Um, we're not looking at simply a group of people who think that when Jesus said he was going to build his church on Peter that that meant that Peter was to be the bishop of the capital of the empire. Yeah. Um, because even if that is what Jesus meant, well, great. You know, like even if that, you know, was Jesus's intention, that's fine. But that says nothing about like authority over the worldwide church or infallibility or any of these other characteristics that now get ascribed to the Pope. Right. Um, those things have, have come along the way. So... Yeah, and and Shelley also talks about the the significance of Rome in all of this. That for one, it's it's not mentioned in our text that we're talking about in right. in the Gospels, uh, and he says that up until the time of Constantine, there's no conclusive evidence that the bishop in Rome ever exercised any jurisdiction outside right. of Rome. So right. there was honor of being the bishop of Rome. Sure, it's it's. For most of for most of the church's history so far, the capital of the Roman Empire, and it was a huge church, and it was huge. Right, he mentions yeah. thirty thousand people in the church in Rome, but 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 also realize that that you know, it, it wasn't a mega church, <laughs> like in the way that we think of a mega church today. Like the the Church of Rome was all of these different churches throughout the city and throughout the region that came together to make up the quote-unquote Church of Rome. They weren't meeting in the Colosseum on Sundays? That's right. Yeah, no. <laughs> they had they had rented out the basketball team's arena. Right. Yeah, so so there's there's honor that comes with the office of bishop over the capital and over the largest uh, population of Christians in mm-hmm. the empire. But jurisdiction outside of that was going to be a new thing that was assumed by somebody like Leo. Sure. And and this is some I mean you see this at like the, the ecumenical church councils where you know seemingly everybody's a bishop. <laughs> right? But but some people are bishops from very small humble places uh-huh. without a lot of wealth and then some are the bishop of Rome. Right. Or the bishop of Constantinople. These like massive cities 
where they have relationships with political leadership and they have great wealth and there's all of this, like they have all of these people and... Um, you know, I think he mentions there were 150 clerics in the church in Rome, 150 clergymen in the church in Rome. You know, so if you're like a humble bishop in this very small area and maybe you've got a couple of priests who are working with you right. or helping to pastor churches in the area, and then you've got 150 priests under the guidance of this one bishop, like inevitably when all those people come together, certain people are going to like garner a little bit more attention than other people. And the exact same thing happens today, even in the Protestant church. Like you get a bunch of pastors together and it's like, well, everybody's a pastor here. And yet some people are from humble rural churches without a lot of people or money. And then you've got people who are from mega churches with thousands of people gathering on the weekends and enormous budgets and books that they've written and podcasts and videos and great influence and all that kind of stuff. And so naturally people gravitate more towards towards those personalities and voices than they do to those who are more humble. Yeah. It, this reminds me of, I'm not going to be able to find the quote quickly enough. Oh, yes, I did. Look at oh, that. Underestimated sweet. myself. So Shelley mentions pretty early in this chapter, as the church grew, it adopted quite naturally the structure of the empire. Mm. And this is kind of what you were just talking about, which, which means that as this institution grows, it begins naturally to look more and more like the worldly institutions around it. Now, Shelley just observes that. Yeah. Right? It's, he's just describing what happens. How are we to take this when, we're, when we have the benefit of hindsight now and looking back at this, that this church just grew naturally to look more and more like the empire around it, which was crumbling? Yeah. And and which was of the world. That's right. I mean, it's a it's a super relevant question in today's world where the church in America seems to have grown over the last 30, 40 years to look more and more like the corporate marketplace. Mm-hmm. Um and where and and unashamedly, I would say, like in some in some cases where the church has been very public and um praiseworthy in trying to import practices of the secular marketplace, you know, Um, and where churches have grown to the point where they have basically become corporations. Yeah. And so, you know, some of that, I think, reveals, while all of that may not be wholly bad or sinful, just necessarily, I do think it reveals a... Uh, desire, well, maybe like a grass is greener type mentality that we have, or just uh, this thinking that whatever we have received from God in the scriptures isn't enough, um, that we need to somehow, um, we need to somehow innovate and bring our own, I don't know, cleverness to the table as right. well in trying to do the work of ministry. Right. When when all along, I think we should be wise to remember that in in the passage again that we were, that we've been talking about, Jesus says that He will build mm-hmm. His church. Yeah. And while Scripture calls leaders to be like shepherds over the flock, it's not it's not their own. Mm-hmm. It's God's flock, and it's Jesus building the church, mm-hmm. and it's 
I don't know. Maybe those those yeah. may be my takeaways when we consider when we consider not just this controversy, but mm-hmm. the, the institution of the church at large. Right. Right. Yeah. So for me, you know, I'm not a fan of the papacy. But I have no problem I'll with... I'll let him know. <laughs> yes. Don't tell anybody. But I don't have any problem with the idea that leadership is needed in the church. Right. And I don't really have a problem with the idea that there is a hierarchy of leadership in the church. No matter, no matter what your leadership structure is, you're bringing together sinful people, and there's always going to be the possibility that sin creeps in and wreaks havoc. And, and so there is no perfect model of church leadership where sin is not a real and present danger to the church. Um, So I don't have a big problem with the idea that there is a bishop of Rome that, and there are priests and, and associate bishops that operate underneath his leadership. However, when you cross that line to going, because this person holds this position, what that means is that God has somehow imbued them with authority over the entire church. Well, you are now usurping the authority that Christ holds. Um, or certainly if you say that this person is without sin, you are usurping authority that Christ holds. Mm-hmm. And how is that any different than uh, the Pelagian controversy that we talked about like in the last chapter by, by saying, no, there is another person besides Christ who is without sin. Yeah. Like that's a big issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's but but here's what I would say. I, I think you go all the way back to the book of Samuel in the Old Testament, and you see the people of Israel saying, "Give us a king, so that we can right? be like the other nations." And and what God tells the prophet Samuel is, "Listen to the voice of the people. Give them a king, because in giving them a human king, like what they are what they're effectively saying is they've rejected me as king." Yeah. And I I think that one of the sins that just mankind falls into over and over and over again in relationship to God. It's a sin against God is the desire for a human being to be king over us rather than God. Um, and, and some of that is because it is far easier for us to see and uh, put our trust in somebody that is flesh and blood um, than it is for us to practice faith in God. Right. And that is not a Roman Catholic thing. And it's not a Jewish thing. It is a human thing. And we see it just as much within the Protestant church as well, where you have churches who, man, we really want our senior pastor or our lead pastor to, to be Jesus for us. Like we would much rather trust in him because we can see him and we hear him and we watch him on the stage every week. And we, we buy into this notion that he hears from God on our behalf. And we buy into this notion that he's going to be the savior that's going to somehow come in and make our church great or save us from previous leadership or whatever the case may be, or bring, return us to some kind of glory days that our church used to have. Like that is, that's not a wholly different you know, impulse than the impulse of let's make this one guy God's representative over all of us. Um, I think the Protestant church does that as well in many places, just in sort of a smaller way. And we don't ascribe infallibility to that person. But when you put that kind of authority um, into a human being, 
you're inevitably going to be let down. Yeah. And we've seen that over and over and again, especially over the last few years in the Protestant church with senior pastors who have garnered all of this authority and um, power and money, you know. I would I would argue that we are in some ways ascribing infallibility to them, maybe subconsciously, but why do we continue to be shocked when yeah. when folks that are on this pedestal that have been placed to this elevated status then you know find out they're they're human that they've that yeah. they've erred that they have flaws that they have sin in their lives yeah and and we're just shocked entire denominations are just just racked over this yeah why is that a surprise right Unless yeah. we unless we really are telling ourselves, well, it's because this guy wasn't supposed to sin. Mm. Come on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was somehow above it or beyond yeah, it. Yeah. And so because of that, he should have this authority, which, you know, full circle, First Vatican Council, which Shelley points to in, in this chapter in 1870. Right. Not that uh, long ago. <laughs> not that long ago. Uh, according to this official teaching, they said that Jesus Christ established the papacy with the Apostle Peter and the bishop of Rome, as Peter's successor, bears supreme authority over the whole church. Yeah. This yeah. is, we've got our one guy, our Moses model, who will hear from God, mm-hmm. place him over the whole church, and just do what he says. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, and and so my my point is to just caution us against looking down our noses at Roman Catholics when the very same same thing is taking place in Protestant churches as well, it's ju- we just use different language for it. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And um, and and you know, maybe you hear me say that and you push back against that, but but I really, I mean, just in my experience in twenty years of ministry and being a part of churches, very large and very small, it, it is a real thing, and it's it's irrespective of size. Um, we we want a king. We really do. Like we desire a king because we are uncomfortable with God truly being the Lord and master of our lives. Um, and that's, you know, that's something that I think the enemy pulls us towards and, and lies to us about. Um, so we've gotten off topic a little bit um, it, just in terms of the, the thrust of this chapter. Most of this chapter really does revolve around Leo, who I think most scholars look back and say, this guy really is the first pope, right? You may you may ascribe that title to Peter, but it's more of an honorary title that you're giving to Peter. Um, this guy, Leo, is really the first one to inhabit that space of being both a spiritual leader and also a, a political leader as well. And after his example, and after the fact that he, uh, you know, effectively saves Rome twice, mm-hmm. um, and and you can read those accounts here in this chapter. Um, I think some of some of what comes out of that in a very sort of superstitious way is that man, God has given this not just this guy Leo, but this office, like supreme power and authority in that he is able to come against the greatest hooligans of our age and ward them off mm-hmm. and save the city from being burned. And so um, things just kind of devolve from there and snowball down from there. Does the church need leadership? Yeah, it does. It needs leadership. And I think the New Testament sets out um, just a model for what leadership 
could look like and and primarily what the qualifications for that kind of leadership should be. Um, but things things easily slide off track when you put one person on sort of the throne over everything else, whether it's Pope Leo or it's Mark Driscoll, right? Mm. Like whenever you put somebody on that throne and you say, this is the guy and his word is golden and he can do no wrong, um, you're just, just like buckle up because you're probably headed for a world of hurt and a world of disillusionment. And what's so sad, and this is why I think the enemy uses this in this way, what's so sad is when you've bought into a human person um, and that person lets you down, what it inevitably does is it completely confuses your view of God. You know, who is God if this person isn't who I thought he was, Mm -hmm. right? Or if he treats me poorly, or if he's abused somebody, or he's bullied somebody, or he's misused money, or whatever the case may be. Um, it can be truly disorienting for people, and Lord knows there are probably thousands and thousands of people who've walked away the f- from the faith, not because of anything about Jesus, but because of the example of a Christian leader in their life who has been a person with sin and flaws. Sure. So, um, so yeah. I don't know, man. I feel like I was triggered here. <laughs> I took this in a totally that's, different direction. No, that's okay. Um, but yeah, I, you know, to be honest, and I mentioned this at the beginning, this chapter was a little bit of a letdown for me because, man, there is just so much in the history of the papacy that this chapter doesn't even go into. And, and so hopefully we can get into more of that later because as we get into the medieval period, right, as we get into later stages, um, this, this office really does grow in power and authority. Yeah, it turns out we're not done with the Pope. No, we are not. And there are some really weird periods of history in, like, there are our anti-popes at times, and then there are dual papacies at times with different people claiming the office. Yeah. And um, that's real confusing if you're going, well, which one of these guys is the guy that got... God has given supreme authority to. So um, really fascinating stuff. So, hey, uh, let's stop here for today. And um, we've got one more chapter left in mm-hmm. our study of the first 500 years of church history. And in this last chapter, we're going to be getting into something we really have not talked about much at all, uh, which is the Eastern Orthodox Church. We've talked a little bit about the fact that there is an Eastern Church and a Western Church. Um, but a lot of our conversation has centered on the Western Church in mm-hmm. talking, especially recently, in talking about people like Augustine and and so forth. And so, um, in this final chapter, we're going to talk and just just kind of scratch the surface on the Eastern Orthodox Church. And um, one of the things I'll mention just in closing is that what I what I've heard before is that Protestants are far closer to the Roman Catholic Church in that we are ultimately the Protestant movement comes out of the Roman Catholic church. Um, we're far closer to Roman Catholics than we are to East Eastern Orthodox Christians, um, just in terms of worship and practice and so forth. And so sometimes the Eastern church can really seem like a, just a wholly different thing. So, yeah. And just as a closing note, that, that kind of reminds me of one of the goals, hopefully of studying church history is to realize that in so many ways, despite some of these differences between, faith traditions, by and large, we are all globally still on the same team. Mm -hmm. And regardless of one's views maybe of the papacy, 
we're still we're still on the same team. Yeah, uh, and that's that's easy to forget when you get bogged down in the weeds of you know picking apart some of these different traditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, to I mean to just remind us of what we talked about with Augustine in the last chapter, it's like there there are the wheat and the tares, right? And so even within the Protestant Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the East Orthodox Church, all the hundreds of denominations that are out there, there are true believers. And there are false believers, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who actually have made Jesus Lord and Master of their life, who have actually followed him in faith. And there are those who have taken on his name, but he's not master of their lives. Um, and for me, I think that's what the Ten Commandments are talking about when it talks about taking the Lord's name in vain. Um, and so, yeah. anyway, weird place to stop, maybe, but we're stopping there. <laughs> and uh, we'll pick up next time. We'll see you guys then. Bye. Bye.